Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and for all of our Jewish listeners, Happy New Year and Shana Tova. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. With confidence in the economy growing, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is warning that risks to the U.S. economy remain, including massive government borrowing in turn driving markets, although the number of parked passenger and cargo aircraft is growing. RTX told investors that 350 jetliners would have to be grounded each year through 2026 to resolve problems with the company's geared turbofan engines, costing the giant $3 billion in charges, prompting one prominent analyst to downgrade the stock. In the wake of President Biden's visit to Hanoi, where the relationship between the two nations was successfully upgraded, Vietnam's flag carrier Vietnam Airlines ordered 50 new Boeing 737 MAX jets. GE is reducing its stake in air cap and key takeaways from the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber uh, Conference and Trade Show outside Washington, D.C., and the DSCI Trade Show uh, in London. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, uh, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure having you on. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. And it's great to see you at DSCI. Great to be here, Vago. Happy New Year. Uh, in, indeed, uh, Richard uh, and Sash, uh, it was wonderful seeing you. And Ron, I'm so sorry that we were also at AFA uh, and we managed to miss each other, if if by inches, uh, ultimately. And, and thanks to the air transport system that, that forced you to leave uh, the show a little bit earlier. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Um, talk to us a little bit about how the group uh, performed. Um, you know, Jamie uh, Diamond's comments uh, by some are, are seen as, you know, sort of a serious warning about the future of the economy. For others, it's, it's sort of a market maker trying to make sure that he doesn't take a bath if he bet on a recession and maybe that's not the direction it's going into. God knows nobody would market manipulate on a scale that, uh, you know, that would never happen on Wall Street. Walk, walk us through what the what the, the drivers are uh, and how the group performed. Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak to what Jamie Dimon said. I don't know. I don't care. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that there. I mean, if you look at where uh, uh, the S&P ended the week and ended the week about flat announcement, you know, a couple basis points. Um, the, the biggest movers uh, on the week really was Raytheon. Raytheon was down uh, just under 10%. Uh, Boeing was down a percent and a half. Uh, broadly, the defense names did better. Lockheed was flat, but on the kind of upside of zero. Uh, GD was up almost 3%. Uh, uh, Northrop Grumman was up uh, about 2.5%. Uh, uh, GE, uh, not to be confused with GD, General Electric, was up over 3%. I think they kind of benefited from some of the pain at, at RTX. And then if you go down in market cap, BWXT was up almost 4%. Uh, Triumph Group held a, an investor meeting this week. Their shares were up maybe just under percent on that. Um, if you look at crude, that's something people have been focusing at. Crude's been climbing higher. We've noted that uh, on our on our weekly podcast. WTI is now about 91. Brent's about 94. The difference between the two is actually kind of tighter than you'd expect. It's usually about five bucks, three, but still over 90. Um, the 10-year yield... Uh, is uh, back to its around its highs. Um, Ten-year yields uh, almost 4.4, uh, and the VIX itself, the measurement of sort of the fear in the market, is actually pretty low. It's uh, around 13 and a half. So, um, kind of all in all, with all the headlines and noise and so on and so forth, it was generally a pretty, you know, market perspective performance-wise. Uh, you know, pretty not much happened this week. 
from from that perspective. The big news really was uh, what's going on at, at RTX with with the with the GTF and so on and so forth. And I know we'll get to that in a moment. We certainly will because it's going to be uh, kind of a, a, me a meaty chunk. Uh, talk to us a little bit about parked aircraft and what it means, uh, because right, I mean, so for some people, uh, when rail lines are busy and when airlines are surging, and you know, uh, passenger and cargo, you know, the, there are fewer of those that are parked, uh, the better it is. But now we're seeing a rise both in parked aircraft for cargo and for uh, passenger traffic. What does what does all of that mean? Yeah, I mean, we guys analyzed it. Yeah, it's kind of a funky week actually. If you look at some of the airlines. Uh, Spirit and, and Frontier had pretty tough weeks. And you're in a situation where you're moving into a seasonally slower period uh, for the airlines, but they're still adding capacity. So that kind of, I mean, from a capacity, seat, price, balance, you're moving into a more kind of upside down period. Uh, for consumers, it's probably a good thing, right? I would expect as you look out over the next couple of months, you're going to start to find some uh, prices for airplane seats that we haven't seen in a while. Um, that being said, if you looked at at the park fleet, um, kind of across fleet types, uh, narrow bodies were about seven percent, I mean, just under seven percent. Um, that was a little bit above where they were in, in September of 2019, uh, but they're 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 approaching where they were pre-COVID, right? So it's you know you're 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 a couple percent away, but um, you're you're definitely trending back to where it was, and you're, you're in on a, on a total basis, it's really not that different. Park wide bodies are still um, well above where they were. If you look at the park fleet, uh, it's about 13% of the fleet. Uh, back in September of 2019, it was uh, uh, only 6% of the fleet. So there's still, relative to the fleet, a lot of wide bodies parked. Um, you look at 70 to 120 seaters, um, there's still a bunch of those parked, right? There's about 15% of those parked. And, you know, back in September of 2019, there was only about 6%. The thing that we've been watching and the trend we've been seeing is park freighters. Uh, park freighters are about about 15% of the fleet, 15 to 16% of the fleet. And that's up almost 40% from where it was. And I think you got a couple things going on here, right? You've got belly cargo coming back. Um, you've got a normalization of, you know, post-pandemic spending online versus kind of in person and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of dynamics there. I mean, what we worry about is there really going to be an oversupply of freighters, right? Not that long ago, everybody was just sort of extrapolating. There's going to be so many freighters. The freighter market's this, you know, panacea. Well, no. Um, so I, I think that's something something to watch. Uh, we watch it. Uh, and uh, I think that's probably the one area in the market right now uh, that we, we see the most risk. Um, Sash, uh, how did the group uh, perform? You don't have to comment on uh, parked aircraft because I know Richard is is raring at the bit to get into the parked aircraft uh, portion of the discussion. It's going to make yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll leave that one to him. Um, no, look, the, the European sector was really interesting last week. I mean, you know, the, if you look at the bold numbers, civil stocks off about 4% and defense up about one and a half. But within that, the dreadful performers of NTU aero engines. Um, when RTX um, catches a cold, MTU gets, you know, near terminal influenza. And um, uh, they're off 16%. Um, MTU has 18% of the yeah, turbofan engine. They also have significant shares, um, you know, 20% or, or thereabouts of the PW2000, the uh, V2500. Uh, engine, so they are a major partner of Pratt and Whitney, and they've been absolutely clobbered by um, Pratt's objectively really poor performance. Um, not just on the gear turbofan engine itself, 
But last week, it was very, very apparent that MTU was totally unsighted as to uh, the fact that uh, RTX was going to uh, announce on this, let alone the scale of it. And so MTU's share price fell really badly uh, on the Monday when RTX did. But then they had a, um, a sort of explanatory uh, conference call uh, on the Wednesday and the shares, um, you know, again, performed really badly uh, on that because um, however hard they try, they are going to have to uh, carry some of the costs and a lot of the cash flow uh, associated uh, with putting the gear turbo fan right. And the way the market's looking at it at the moment, they don't believe this is the, the last of the problems that we're going to see with the gear turbo fan. If you remember Rolls-Royce and Trent 1000, and Trent 1000 has arguably been Rolls's most problematic engine since the uh, RV2, the original RV211. Um, but Trent 1000, the problems didn't come in, uh, didn't, you know, it wasn't just one problem and uh, a big charge. The problems kept on coming because the more they put, put engines into the overhaul shops, the more it became apparent that there were other problems uh, associated with the engines or it would cost more to put them right. And the European market is assuming it's going to be the same uh, with the gear Tofan, that once Pratt brings, you know, 1,200 engines through the shops, other issues will uh, emerge. And I, I don't think that's wrong. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're not over uh, on that. So that was bad trend to you. It was a dreadful performer last uh, last week. And it's down 14% on the year. There really, I mean, there aren't any other stocks that are really down this year, uh, but MTU right. is. And... Airbus had a bad week, down 3%. Why? Because people are beginning to think Pratt just isn't going to deliver gear turbofans uh, for the A320neo. So the risk that Airbus misses its full-year um, deliveries guidance and hence probably earnings guidance has just gone up a huge notch. And the risk that next year um, Airbus is not able to ramp production anything like as much as they want uh, went up. By contrast, Rolls-Royce up Three and three and a half percent, and that's a you know that's just like GE. Um, if Pratt has problems, the competitors do well, and I reckon if you you know if uh, Airbus was to launch a new program, and all three engine companies were offering broadly equivalent engines, Pratt wouldn't even make it past the first sifting at the moment. Airbus is so unhappy with them, and justifiably so. So that's good news for Rolls as the number three engine producer. Uh, and we're uh, going to get to gear tur turbofan in in uh, in uh, just uh, a second, Richard. Uh, really quickly uh, before we get to the gear turbofan issue, your quick take on uh, parked aircraft. And aside from an authoritarian uh, state uh, maybe suggesting to its uh, you know flag national uh, carrier to buy uh, you know fifty seven thirty seven maxes. Uh, is there any anything broader to take away from that uh, order in the wake of uh, President Biden's visit? Well, I think, you know, just dealing with the second issue first, it's sort of a broader trend that um, government intervention and fleet selection decisions are back. It was, you know, sort of removed from the table back during the deregulatory and free market days of the 90s and 2000s. And you had the WTO's agreement on trade and civil aircraft that for most market countries said, you can't do that, period. Uh, well, it's back. <laughs> and whether it's, it, you know, and also in some important markets like India, obviously Vietnam is small, but a growth market. And it is now perfectly fine for governments to get involved in private enterprise decisions. That's 
an unfortunate reality. And uh, industrial policy is back too. This is a much broader conversation. So we'll be seeing more of this. And obviously, civil aerospace is closely roped in with national security considerations, industrial policy considerations, whatever else. So it's, it's uh, shall we say, an irresistible temptation for governments. Um, regarding the park fleet, it's really interesting. I mean, basically, every slightly down sector tells its own story, as Ron indicated. You know, narrow bodies are fine. Nothing to see here. Uh, there are all kinds of issues that have slightly raised the number, but there's still nothing to see there at all. Regional right. aircraft, that's a different one. Double digits. You know, there are an awful lot of old regional aircraft, especially regional jets. No one quite knows what's going to replace them, but it's coming towards the end of days for quite a few. And so you're <laughs> going to see more numbers like this. You know, it's you look forward to drinking beer out of your former CRJ. You know, it's it's not a happy story. Um, when it comes to wide bodies, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, it's international isn't quite there yet. And of course, a lot of international routes are now being flown by single aisles. And of course, you've got a lot of quads and whatever else that are just waiting to be melted down. Um, nothing good there. So it's not surprising. And then the big issue, the elephant in the corner, of course, freighters, as Ron discussed, you know, I can't help but wonder whether there's been a bit of, um, as Ron indicated, maybe an expectation that all commerce would move towards Internet-based and air-shipped. That appears to be a little bit misplaced. You know, as a matter of fact, people in the retail sector are now saying that in-person shopping is actually coming back faster than expected. Uh, and I can't help but wonder if there isn't some read-through there. Now, the other thing that's interesting is you ain't seen nothing yet. There was so much capacity, not just added, but also put in place for the future. You know, we now have 777-300ER conversion lines, three of them. Um, in other words, it's not so much the, the shift um, or the, the issue here with capacity. It's what's coming down the pike two, three, four years hence. Um, and of course, as you know, as you say, seeing belly car goes back too. There's all kinds of long-term considerations. Upshot is, back in the old days, I would have seen these numbers and said, ah, canary in the coal mine, broader economic downturn coming. I don't see that here. What I do see is, however, potentially overcapacity for a bunch of reasons that aren't directly linked to economic demand. Um, I should point out that as long as uh, each time you uh, uh, drink from that uh, beer uh, flagon, uh, Richard, you toast the Canadair. Uh, regional jet at the end of the day there's, there's no shame in that no shame in that <laughs> and a quick word from our sponsors bell sponsors our daily podcast hii sponsors our global coverage general atomics aeronautical systems sponsors our strategy coverage ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage ge aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage and Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space uh, has sponsored our coverage of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber uh, Conference and Trade Show. Uh, Ron, um, you know, Sash uh, jumped uh, the geared turbofan uh, shark uh, a little bit, uh, but want to come back to you um, to sort of get uh, sort of the base case on, on on what happened, right? I mean, we've been talking about challenges uh, with the engine uh, for a little while. Raytheon last week announced a $3 billion charge. Um, it is a revolutionary power plant uh, by Pratt & Whitney, uh, but it is one that's also had some challenges. And as we mentioned, about 350 of those jets uh, are going to have to get grounded each year um, through 26 uh, to correct the problems. What are the problems? What's the challenge uh, and what does the charge cover 
before we get to the downgrade and, and the reasons for it, or if you want to talk about it, right? You're the analyst that actually downgraded uh, RTX. Uh, if you want to put that into the narrative, uh, why uh, go right ahead and then we'll go around the horn about what this sort of more broadly means. Go ahead. Yeah. So <clears throat> a couple of things are going on, right? And the engine has had challenges um, unrelated to this most recent challenge, um, you know, over the last while, uh, everything from, you know, combustor to this, that, the other thing. Uh, so is its competitor engine, you know, the Leap engines also had some challenges. Both engines run hotter than their predecessors, and um, that requires, um, you, know, you know, kind of special consideration from from a from a design perspective. This most race, the most recent issue with the GTF is related to a, a powdered metal issue. So you, you know, one way to forge parts, you can use super alloys. These super alloys, you can make them um, uh, maybe a handful of ways. You, you can presumably do it with isothermal forging. You can do it with hot dye forging. You can do it through powder metal forging. So these are powder metal parts. Uh, when Pratt added capacity at their wholly owned subsidiary HMI Metals uh, to create more powdered metal, they uh, devised a process that sadly um, uh, generated some impurities in that powder. And those impurities, when you do the forgings, basically form uh, inclusions. Uh, and these inclusions, under stress, under heat, in operation, can form cracks. And then those cracks could lead to uh, a disc failure. Um, in this case, it's the high, uh, HPT, high-pressure turbine disc. Uh, but they're also uh, replacing uh, compressor discs. So my, I assume that they I think something could happen there, too. Otherwise, they wouldn't do that. Um, now, this is a problem that first got you know, you know, described to the street after the Paris Air Show during their, their earnings call. Uh, that was about maybe two months ago. And it was a described as a, a problem that was probably on the order of maybe a $500 million charge. Don't extract that. I'll lay that number out to the fleet. This is controllable. The number of parts that are going to be required, the number of engines that are going to need this fix will be very limited. Maybe, you know, 1% of the fleet. Uh, will be the be the what they call the quote unquote fall through rate. Two months later, it's no no no. Actually, guess what? It's a it's a much bigger thing. We're going to have to change these discs on basically the entire fleet. Everything that was using discs that were fabricated, I think it was between uh, twenty fifteen and late twenty twenty one, almost twenty twenty two. And I think it's about three thousand engines out of a fleet that today I believe is about thirty two hundred engines. Um, and and so they're gonna have to go in and change all these now uh and while they're in there they're going to change not just the high pressure turbine disc the the compressor disc as well that leads to what you mentioned you're going to have about i think it's you know 300 to 350 and aircraft on ground for an extended period of time on average over that time period it's probably going to peak out around 600 airplanes on ground um so it's disruptive to the customers it's kind of disruptive to everything it's and it couldn't happen at a worse time basically from an industrial capacity point of view and from a maintenance repair and overhaul point of view. Something like this would generally be more manageable if you could have more spare engines in the fleet, you can you can mitigate disruption that way, or if you've got more capacity in MRO shops, just the reality is there is not much, if any, capacity in MRO shops. So the time to do this takes a long time. They're expecting it to be something on the order of, you know, kind of 250 to 300 days to take care of an airplane. Um, so you, you've got, you've got that the MRO capacity thing, and then just the capacity to, to fabricate engines and you have a choice, right? You can either fabricate a new engine and give it to Airbus to put on a new airplane, or you can fabricate engines to put into your, uh, spare fleet. 
um you kind of go through all that and it just is a it's a it's a logistics nightmare right now so when you look at the biggest single cost that's going to confront pratt and they've been i think you know said that is the the uh, liquidated damages they owe their customers that that's a big number uh and the estimated number right now is somewhere between six to seven hundred billion Pratt owns half of that. That's where they get to that $3 billion number. I think, Sash, if you can correct me, they, they uh, MTU's got 18% of that. That's where they get hit with it. But all the partners or risk-sharing partners get hit with this. Um, I think, so that's one thing. We downgraded the shares because per Sash's previous comments, it we're not sure if this is the last issue. One, um, the company did not say for sure this doesn't impact other GTF engines. Uh, you know, the one on the 220, uh, and the one on the e, the ERJ, and even the F-135. This powder was used essentially on every engine they make. So they don't think it impacts those engines, but they don't know. Uh, and we're just being very, very cautious here. And, and our downgrade was predicated on the fact that we really don't think the stock can work until we get a pretty good idea of ring-fenced what this thing really is, and that you know to some extent that the worst is behind them. Right? It doesn't all have to happen, and everything doesn't have to get fixed. But once we're pretty confident that, yeah, okay, this is it, we can kind of go from here. It's easier to be 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 more positive on the shares. You know, any any time you look at history, um, the the question is right. You know, how management maintains its credibility, right? And statements can be tied to that credibility, right? Didn't you know? Talk to us a little bit about that arc from we're okay uh, in Paris to where we are today, right? And that oh, by the way, it could be more than geared turbofan. So yeah, at the Paris Air Show, there was no mention of this. Uh, they may or may not known it, and they may not, they may or may not have understood the depth of the issue. Right, yeah, I think that's an open question. But there was no discussion of this at the Paris Air Show. There was other issues with the engine that were discussed. The outlook was very bright. Then we roll into earnings uh, on the earnings call. They brought this up, said, "Hey, it's a problem. It's limited. Do not extrapolate this out bigger than it is." Then it turns out, hmm, you know what? You should have extrapolated out because that was probably about right. And that begs the question, well, what what aren't we being told? What isn't fully understood yet? And how big could this really be? Now, I think this is an important, very, very important point to make. Management is doing the stand-up thing, right? I mean, they're saying, hey, we got a problem. We're going to fix it. Right. We're going to make these engines safe. So, uh, you know, for, you know, and to be crystal clear, I mean, my downgrade wasn't predicated on anything that questions that. I mean, they're really, they're doing the right thing. It's just a really expensive thing. And right now, there's a lot of uncertainty around it. And investors right. hate uncertainty. Um, uh, Sash, uh, you know, you, you talked a little bit about this. I think 18% is the same number that you'd used about MTU's stake, uh, in, uh, the program kind of walk us through, um, again, from an implications uh, standpoint, right? I mean, you also said that, you know, you, you see this sort of, um, you know, like everybody has seen this play before, right? You know, there were a couple more acts to this sort of give us your sense and, and Richard, uh, want to get yours and, you know, how, how it impacts the market and how it oper impacts operators ultimately too. I mean, that's a lot of airplanes to take out of service. Uh, and, you know, at a time when we're having supply chain challenges, potentially really problematic also. And that's before we get into, uh, you know, God forbid, F-135 uh, uh, challenges and other power plant challenges. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, uh, I'm Ron's absolutely right. MTU's share is 18% and Japan Aero Engines, which is a uh, uh, broadly IHI uh, in Japan from memories but, uh, is, uh, is is slightly more than that and then there are other much smaller risk sharing partners as well Volvo in Sweden uh, for example so in total 
um, Pratt's share is 51% and the, the risk-sharing partners get the rest. There was a lot of talk last week, not just on the MTU call, but uh, we talked to a number of the other risk-sharing partners about mitigation and about the degree to which, given that so much of this is Pratt's problem, and you know, Ron pointed out, you know, their facility, their powder metal, that's the stuff that isn't working. They are all looking very, very hard indeed about just how much the, the risk-sharing partnership terms and conditions can be enforced on this. Um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say the, the risk-sharing partners are very, very upset indeed. Um, you know, as I said earlier, not just because they weren't informed, but just because of the, the sheer scale of the, uh, of the problem here. Um, one of the issues that we are looking at, because it was raised on the RTX call, and again, raised in quite a lot of detail on the MCU call, is the degree to which, as part of the compensation to airlines, uh, Pratt may well choose, rather than paying cash, to offer some quite chunky discounts, either on new engines or on uh, spares or on overhauls. Um, that would make sense because it would defer some of the, the cost out beyond the sort of two and a half year horizon. And anything you can do to sort of defer those cash costs is, is you know, uh, optically a good thing. The problem is that it may uh, mean that the profitability of the entire geared turbofan program is, is uh, you know, below what it should be, at least through the middle of the decade and probably towards the end of the decade, because so much stuff has, has had to be discounted to keep some really very unhappy airlines uh, sweet. And I think this is something that we're not going to, I mean, we clearly don't get sight of this. What was fascinating is that even MTU said they don't get sight of this. This will be something done by Pratt and Whitney. It's it's their call. Um, but you know, it's causing us to look at our model for the entire gear turbo fan problem, their program and just say, is this program going to be as profitable as we had assumed? We suspect not. Um, and that's a that's a real problem for what is undoubtedly Pratt and Whitney's flagship. Uh, civil, uh, civil Aero program, but otherwise they take the you know they take billion and a half cash cost uh, on the nose. They hope that they can get another billion and a half of uh, contributions from their uh, RSPs, but uh, the relationship with them has clearly not gone well. Uh, and that's a you know that's exactly what you don't want. Just at a time when, uh, apropos our, our discussion last week about um, Ron's right. note on whether Boeing really now needs to uh, to, to launch a new aircraft. This is the time when the aero engine companies need to be preparing for the next uh, big R&D upcycle. And if you're firefighting a, pro um, a problem like this, and this is a real problem, um, Pratt is not going to be in a good shape to do that. Richard, uh, your sense on all this, and also the timing of this could not be worse in some respects, as both Congress uh, and some in the administration revisit um, the AETP Right, uh, the the advanced engine technology program. Uh, you know, full disclosure, uh, GE uh, uh, sponsors uh, our air power coverage and is one of the competitors in AETP. Uh, you know, General Electric and Pratt and Whitney. Um, uh, you know, a program that unfortunately, for budgetary reasons, was was sidelined uh, to sort of you know up, upgrade the power of the F thirty five and pave the way for a new generation of fighter engines uh, that that you know have more power, more cooling, etc. I mean, how does all of this Right. Talk to us on the commercial side and what the potential military implications are, because Lockheed also has been auguring for a new engine. Um, anyway, walk, walk us through how this feeds into the entire narrative, uh, especially since you know Lockheed wants to show 
progress on TR3, get to block four, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, there's an awful lot of that blah, 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 indeed. You know, I mean, there's just so much. I, I meant, I meant that in good blah, 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 but anyway. No, yeah, no, no, of ahead. course. Of course, no, strong agreement. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's more than just peripheral stuff. You know, normally we would say that the read-through to military AATP and all that other, all the other considerations wouldn't be there because, you know, typical military programs have rigidly defined, relatively rigidly defined KPPs and performance in unrelated commercial engines, definitely not a KPP. However, AATP, if it happens, is going to be funded with congressional add-ons. That's the way to go. And Congress is going to be looking at this um, and, and well, saying, all right, we'd better have a contingency plan. And uh, we, you know, we're going to take into account that commercial performance aspect. So I think you're right. You know, it could, it could play a role in Congress incrementally funding AATP. Does that mean they'll get the $6 billion to make it happen? That's another story. But, you know, it's clearly a complication that Pratt Whitney doesn't need. Um, in, in other news, it, it transpires that General Electric might also have powder metal contamination issues, a lot less dire. Some of the reports say it's, you know, pretty, it's, it's relatively minor. It, it, it's going to show up in scheduled depot inspections rather than anything that has to be urgently done. But still, it's clear that there might be a, a lot more going on with powder metal than we'd uh, previously believed. You know, it's one of the exciting new technologies of the last decade. You know, for some reason, I'm, 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 it brings to mind, you know, this, this, uh, this material also processed in a facility that, uh, that processes tree nuts or something. So careful with contamination. <laughs> Uh, but clearly, there yeah, there could be, be there could have been milk uh, involved in the preparation, and and <laughs> dairy are you products, dairy products, right? Um, is there tree nuts <laughs> said for said by somebody who's allergic to tree nuts? Clearly, um, <laughs> just really quickly on leap. Um, so you're talking about leap problems, is that it, or is the powder G and X, G nine X? It's a whole bunch of it, you know. But apparently, it's 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 pretty minor, but it has emerged as a possible issue that they're going to need to inspect. Hopefully it doesn't keep going. You know, from Pratt's standpoint, though, not only is this a you know military read-through issue, but as we've been discussing, it's also a customer relations issue because you're starting to get a couple of key airline customers say, hey, wait a minute, you are prioritizing deliveries to Airbus rather than delivering spare engines to us, the people who need the capacity and have grounded jets as a consequence of your engine problems. So this is really bad. Either, you know, Pratt has to incentivize these folks and, uh, you know, that adds to the financial hemorrhage or alternatively, um, they have to deliver fewer engines to Airbus. It, it impacts their ramp up. And as Sash says, that has an impact on their results, too. Uh, before I pull uh, Ron in uh, to get uh, his take on powdered metals and why we're having this uh, these kinds of problems, uh, just a quick reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Girdler. Ron, why are, why are we having these podcasts? powdered metal uh, problems uh, all of a sudden that are now impacting, right? I mean, if it's impacting GE and Pratt and Whitney, it's got to be impacting other people as well, right? Yeah, it's a new technology, right? I mean, as Richard pointed out, I mean, it, it's been one of the things that's really kind of rolled in over call it the last 10, 15 years. And 
Uh, now you're applying it in situations with engines that are uh, burning hotter, probably, than anybody had dreamed of, call it 20 years ago, have um, you know metal parts that have geometries that are more complicated, airflow patterns that are more complicated within the engine. Um, so that all adds to it. One of the the um, speculations I've, I've heard on the GTF versus the Leap that uh, given the amount of airflow through the engine that the the, the GTF actually um, core is maybe undersized, so it runs really hot. And if you look at that, the, the similar implementations on the A220 and the E2, there, there's a chance that they might not have the problems there because those engines just aren't don't have as much stress and strain on them um, relative to the engine on on the A320. That has yet to be you know proven out. And then when you when you look at um, if you compare you know GE versus Pratt, as Richard pointed out, G, GE's dealt with this before, right? And uh, you know GE through uh, CFM uh, and Safran has a humongous fleet out there, so. Well, I think right. one could argue uh, that they were just they're just better set up to deal with recalls and problems and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, just you know, if you look at the history of Pratt, and this is you know Pratt getting back into narrow bodies uh, in sort of in a bigger way, and the ramp up here was you know, just huge for them. Not that the ramp up wasn't huge for GE, but from a Pratt perspective, they hadn't lived through anything like this really ever. Right. So it, I think from a Pratt perspective, there was maybe the unknown unknowns that maybe some of those unknowns GE understood because they just had more experience with this kind of stuff in the field. Uh, and, and, and certainly a much larger uh, commercial engines uh, supplier uh, in uh, the ecosystem and for some time and why the, the gear turbofan was such an important play for Pratt and Whitney to sort of expand, uh, you know, into, into a, into a space where, you know, the, the bigger players were roles were MTU were um, uh, GE and, and obviously uh, Safran and CFM being the most successful engine uh, franchise. Uh, we're going to have to shift gears uh, here uh, a little bit because there were a lot of takeaways uh, from uh, both uh, AFA as well as uh, DSCI. Uh, Sash, uh, let me uh, go go to you and get the DSCI uh, and um, a little bit of your war takeaways uh, as well. Ukrainians there, uh, you know, a large Ukrainian contingent. Every other stand uh, had a Ukrainian flag on it. Uh, and folks were uh, happy to tell you both on and off the record uh, the roles they're playing in supporting uh, Ukraine and, and their sense of uh, lessons uh, learned. From your standpoint, what were the key takeaways from what uh, is the world's largest defense show? Uh, and, um, you know, for most people who attended it, uh, probably one of the best run ones. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, um, we, we could do an entire show uh thinking uh thinking about um takeaways on on this year's gsci because it was absolutely i mean it, it was physically huge 1500 uh participants um in you know stands and, and displays and so forth um and you know even four days didn't really do it um uh you know really wasn't enough at a uh, at a show like this but i mean just some of the um the really basic issues first of all i mean you know ukraine uh, I think the best uh, presentation that I went to was actually one on artillery. Um, I mean, DSEI has these breakout sessions um, all dotted around the the two enormous uh, halls, and they're somewhere between uh, 25 minutes and 45 minutes long. And, and this was one on artillery with a British brigadier who's commanding now the major uh, artillery and uh, deep, deep strike brigade, a 
uh, a French uh, full colonel, very, very impressive, and an incredibly young um, uh, Ukrainian uh, colonel who is in the artillery directorate there. And it was absolutely eye-opening um, uh, what, uh, what, what they were all talking about, but clearly, particularly the uh, Ukrainian. Um, I mean, key issues, uh, I think, there are they are still, uh, you know, they're fighting several battles. Yes, they're fighting a massive battle against the Russians, but they're also fighting a battle just to absorb all this Western equipment, Western ammunition they're being given, because, um, you know, it, and this, I was even quite shocked at this, it is impossible to guarantee that if you fire an American shell out of a French or a British or a German 155 millimeter uh, howitzer, that it will actually hit the target where you wanted it to. And that goes for every single possible combination of ammunition and gun. They get pretty pretty close. But so the Ukrainians are having to either make sure that they only put um, you know, British ammunition into British guns or German ammunition into German guns, or they're having to make sure that they have completely redone the firing tables so that they can uh, adjust for the ammunition gun uh, problems. I think that going forward, we are going to see a huge move by NATO to try to drag all of the nations and all of the ammunition back to uh, a degree of commonality again. There was, and there still is, a thing called the Joint Ballistics MOU, which is which is a physical uh, MOU. It just defines the size of the chamber of 155 millimeter uh, gun. It's clearly not enough uh, at the moment, right. and so uh, I felt I felt very very sorry for the. Uh, Ukrainians um, uh, in that regard. Um, second issue. Can I, may, I, may I just make may I just make a brief uh, parenthetic point that one of the things the Ukrainians very cleverly are doing uh, with artificial intelligence is actually doing that kind of gun mapping and ammunition mapping uh, to figure out right that you know whose rounds are coming from where. Uh, you know, what guns they can be fired in. And unfortunately, it is a complicating shell game. So I'd heard the story from the AI part of it. I hadn't heard uh, that uh, presentation, uh, which is which is utterly uh, fascinating, but also a very interesting, you know, application of AI uh, to try to help you figure out like, you know, what, you know, or, or um, you know, automation to try to be able to figure out what ammunition has, has got to go with what guns for the for the best, uh, uh, prog for the for the highest possible precision and reliability. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I have to say, um, this this poor Ukrainian artillery colonel, who I didn't look to me like somebody who's benefiting from a lot of help from from AI just at the moment. Uh, it seems to me he he and his colleagues were still having to do a, a ton of stuff in Excel <laughs> to to get the accuracy that they wanted. But yeah, that's you know that's exactly the sort of thing. Uh, and Ukrainian software engineering is very, very good in fact. Now, a, a couple of other takeaways, though. Um, as Ukrainian target acquisition gets better, and it's always a mix, we, we focus on drones because we can see them on um, uh, on X, Twitter. Um, but actually, he said, you have to have a mix of drones, electronic inter uh, intercept, ground-based observer observers. He said, you cannot do it all with, with drones because they take too long to get on uh, to the target. Um, and also because of their threat from electronic warfare. But as, as their target acquisitions got better, the number of rounds they need to fire each day is coming down. They were firing about 8,000 rounds a day. They're down now to about 6,000 rounds a day. Um, uh, so they're saving ammunition, or rather they're not wasting as much, uh, because the rounds are, are actually hitting much more accurately. Um, but scale that up. That's still nearly 2 million rounds per year. Now, our estimate is that combined U.S. and European 
155 millimeter shell capacity before the war started was about half a million rounds a year. The other million and a half comes out of our stocks, which thankfully pre-war were pretty big. Um, but European and US shell capacity rises, again, on our estimates, we've done quite a lot of work on this, to about a million and a half rounds, 2024, 2025. Um, it's still not enough. That's the big takeaway. I, If we get to that level, we can just about, possibly, satisfy Ukrainian demands, but we're not going to, to refill our own arsenals again. Um, so basically, if you're a manufacturer of 155mm artillery, or the propellant, or the charges, um, this is a really, really long-term, incredibly strong market. Final point, um, guided rockets, whether it's the GMRS rocket coming out of high Mars in the M270s, uh, uh, or now there's starting to be a series of European requirements. Um, KMW had a really interesting joint venture with Elbit to um, offer Elbit's uh, rockets to the uh, European market. I think they will see a lot of interest there. Rheinmetall has teamed with uh, Lockheed Martin. Um, but it's very, very interesting that um, we're starting to see a lot of different variants of the basic rocket launcher, the basic rockets, to, just to try to fill capacity. Lockheed Martin and their major teammate, Northrop Grumman, simply cannot build GMLRS rockets fast enough at the moment. And so corners will be cut to make sure that uh, Ukraine and European nations get something that they can fire out of their launchers and get launchers that are more mobile than what's gone before. Final point, um, and this is now stepping back from Ukraine a bit, but the UK service chiefs at DSCI were very, very disciplined. Well, you'd expect that, they're uniformed servicemen, but they have all clearly been told, you cannot stand up and say, we need more money for defense. Whatever the state of the British Armed Forces, and it's not great, um, the UK defence budget is the largest in Europe by you know, some measure at the moment, uh, about 53 billion sterling. And they've all been told you can't ask for mon more money, period. Now, that's going to hold until after the next general election, sometime in 2024. Then there'll be a de defence review. Um, I don't want to be um, a, whoever carries out that defence review because it may come up with some really unpleasant conclusions. But we've got a year to decide, you know, to, to talk about that again. But the one area where the UK service chiefs um, did talk about a program that is not funded and is enormous, is integrated air and missile defence. I've never heard so many service chiefs, right up to Admiral Sir Tony Radikin, mention IAMD before. The UK has no, actually, we don't even have unintegrated air and missile defence. We don't have any missile defence whatsoever. Um, you know, we've got a couple of ships that can shoot down missiles, give them Type 45 destroyers if they're in the right place, but they won't be. Um, so to have service chiefs talking about IAMD, that's probably the biggest single outstanding program now in Europe, because it's it's a it, it'll be a 10 billion plus program as it comes through. Um, and that, I think, is going to be the big battle for uh, the next defence review. And IAMD in general is the big, if not unfunded, poorly funded area in Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, Germany has still got an enormous program to go, as, as has France and Italy. Uh, that's going to be an enormous market to, uh, you know, for at least the next five and likely 10 years. Yeah, just very quickly, Sash, in about 30 seconds, does Vladimir Putin's deal with uh, Kim Jong-un uh, change the artillery uh, and weapons dynamic for Russia in a meaningful manner? I think it gives Russia more endurance. Uh, I'm not sure it changes the dynamic. Um, the Ukrainians have got pretty good at targeting Russian artillery. If that is Russian artillery that has been supplied by North Korea, 
so be it. But I mean, I don't think the, the Koreans are going to be able to supply a huge amount of very, very modern, very mobile, you know, classic self-propelled artillery. Uh, ammunition, yeah, lots of it. But the problem with lots of ammunition in the in the, the classic Soviet concept is that's also uh, makes for very, very large targets. And it's the Ukrainian ability to target those ammunition dumps um, predominantly with GMLRS that has um, complicated things for Russia. So it gives Russia endurance, but I don't think it changes uh, the the immediate nature of the battlefield. And uh, it, even if it's uh, 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 North Korean uh, missilery uh, that gets it comes into the picture, I think that would be as escalating as Russia has claimed supply of you know British French cruise missiles, uh, F-16s uh, from the US. And you know, most likely something pre- resembling a Tacoms or indeed the um, uh, ground launch small diameter bomb would be. I, I think that um, if they supply significant amounts of missile rate, and I think it's more likely to be unguided rockets actually, effectively right. um, 122 and, and 227 millimeter rockets. But if you know, if they do supply stuff that is really big, that's the next big um, step up in terms of of weapons supply. And uh, I, I, I spent that's actually a bit of a zero sum game. Um, uh, Ron, let me uh, go to you. Uh, great note on takeaways from AFA and Richard. Want to get your sense from your standpoint? What particularly jumped out for you? Yeah, AFA was uh, I think interesting this year for for a number of reasons. Um, they, there was over twenty thousand attendees, huge, hugely packed place, right? right. Um, you know, to, to hear uh, Secretary Kendall speak, I actually had to watch him on my iPhone outside the room because <laughs> there was no room in the room or the overflow room so i just sat down with a coffee somewhere and just watched him virtually um so it just give you a sense it was very well attended uh, one of the things i like to do when i wander about one of these shows is just look look who's there what's going on um and and what i found fascinating was you had some new players there in a big way so andrew was there with a big display uh with their with their new um, unmanned aircraft. Um, Palantir was there, Shield AI was there. That's just to pick a few kind of the new players, uh, but there were a lot there. Uh, when you wandered about the floor, uh, there was a lot of CCAs on display, either life-size mock-ups, smaller mock-ups, pictures, everybody and their brother was was showing their version version of a CCA, so you got a real you got a real sense that um, you have companies that want to make stuff. Um, then some other you know things you, you, I picked up while while I was there that you know uh, even though right now Boeing's defense business seems um, you know have some big challenges uh, that uh, Boeing does have a shot at uh, I mean in, in a reasonable shot at um, NGAD, uh, which I think might come as a positive surprise but then you know it's always sort of a double-edged sword if you win it and what you bid it at can you actually make money doing it Boeing doesn't have recent history of actually showing that they can win something and make money doing it but but we'll see but it's interesting to know that um you know they they are they really are in the horse race uh so I think there was there was a a lot to be taken away uh I'll note that you know there there wasn't much cyber so when you walked around the, the show in previous years there was a lot of talk of cyber and JADC2, not so much this year, right? I mean, the, the real focus was on CCAs, maybe artificial intelligence, that 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 sort of thing. 
Um, so I, I think that was some of the biggest stuff that jumped out at me. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, point out that um, a, a lot of country, companies had very, very interesting uh, approaches uh, to the way that they're going to do uh, the collaborative uh, combat uh, aircraft. Um, and I thought it was uh, fascinating, sort of the the modular approach, uh, for example, that uh, General Atomics had a very clever sort of central core uh, that they have that a lot of the aircraft, uh, you know, you, you just add wings and other dimensions to it, but the, it kind of has a common a uh, very simply designed uh, frame to reduce manufacturing costs. So things like that are absolutely fascinating. It was great to see, you know, the Fury model uh, and then a whole bunch of other people who were briefing some some rather uh, fascinating uh, approaches. And, it, and you know, AFA is unique because you get a chance to really interact with the senior leadership of the Air Force. You know, even though there are 20,000 people there, uh, it's it's really interesting how you can you can actually inter- interact with the entire leadership of the force uh, in another, uh, you know, just a just a terrific, uh, you know, annual uh, family uh, Air Force reunion. Uh, Richard, um, last word, what, what are the things that, you know, from AFA uh, and the coverage subsequently that jumped out that you thought was interesting? I should point out that General Atomics is long shot. Also, um, you know, uh, got a DARPA uh, contract um, to uh, develop uh, a demonstrator, right, for air-to-air, uh, air-to-air weapons-capable air vehicle that can get deployed from uh, another aircraft. So to, to act as that sort of CCA, if you will, and test uh, some concepts. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, very much a CCA show. You know, you could say that CCA is the new cyber or the new hypersonics. You know, it's the latest boom market. This one might, you know, <laughs> this one might be real um, in terms of actual growth rates. The problem here, uh, well, as we've uh, we've already discussed, you know, artificial intelligence really needs to be in a better place before you have mass deployment of CCA in a, you know, in a, in a meaningful way. But they're going to proceed. Now, the question becomes, who builds these things? I mean, it's not just the primes. Obviously, you've got lots of, you know, upstart companies that have interesting designs. Only a couple of them are established. Uh, Airframe primes, Boeing with Ghostbat comes to mind. Everyone else has to figure out how to build these things. Uh, It's not like they've got you know, the sort of aerostructures manufacturing capacity or the ability to integrate and design and then mass produce air vehicles, even in a, right. a smaller class. Engines are a major challenge. You know, we've never really had this kind of uh, military engine industrial base. You know, what do you do? You you resurrect Honeywell's TFE 731 or, or Pratt Canada PW500, 600, you militarize them. Is it a bigger turbofan? What does that look like? Kratos has its own engine arm. It only does very, very, very small engines. Everyone else needs to think what the power plant is like. Williams FJ44, you know, that might be one of the leading ones, but it might not be powerful enough. This might be something more in the, you know, five or 6,000 pound thrust or even more class. So there's so much we don't know about what it will be like to decide, A, which winning air vehicles get it, develop the AI necessary to really harness their power. And then most of all, gear up to build a thousand of these. <laughs> I mean, right. that's going to take the creation of, well, a whole new supply chain. That's going to be a major challenge in the later in the decade and certainly in the 2030s. And uh, just before we wrap up, any other any other thoughts, given the scope and the breadth of the show beyond the fact that we're going to get into trouble and Williams has just got to start cranking out uh, some of those well, I was going to say high capacity <laughs> units. It's a terrific engine, but it's a little bit on the small side. 
Yes, it is. It's probably uh, a much bigger engine in the five, six, seven thousand pound thrust class. We, but we don't know, and there's not a lot of military engines in that class either, or even modern civil ones that would be built in those is those numbers. You know, as Ron says, it's uh, there are rumors that Boeing might have a better chance. It's hard to tell what's real and what's just the Air Force putting pressure on Lockheed Martin. As I think we oh, you uh, mean you mean about you mean in the end about yeah right. yeah because and and of course don't forget that it's it's when has it been that you haven't had a two thirds one third contractor relationship with a large aircraft um, obviously F eighteen and uh, and F twenty two fit that pattern so it could be easily Boeing taking a meaningful share but not still not prime or it could be the other way around you know obviously lots of unknowns. Um, all, all, all I'll uh, say is, um, you know, the Defense Department fairly early on in the F-35 competition or the Joint Strike Fighter competition understood that Lockheed had the better uh, had the better product uh, and was likely the winner. And the whole thing, you know, and the competition continued for a long time, even though many in the Pentagon had concluded the Boeing design really wasn't going to go anywhere, but ultimately didn't want it to be a cakewalk uh, and made sure that it was competitive to that so that Lockheed would run through the tape. Uh, so it would make sense. And, you know, but again, there was no industrial based mechanism to help make this decision uh, ultimately. Uh, right. I mean, so for people who look at this and say, well, you know, do you want uh, Lockheed to have, you know, be the F-22, the F-35, and then the NGAD contractor. I, I don't think we have a mechanism that would prevent us on industrial base grounds from picking Lockheed uh, if it has a superior product to, to Boeing's, uh, ultimately. So that's what I find exactly. fascinating about this. Oh, could I uh, just one more thing? Please. The other news that broke during the AFA show was the first uh, delivery of the production Red Hawk, the T-7. Um, which was uh, welcome news given the problems it's had, but still no uh, IOC until 2027. Meanwhile, there are more and more stories making the rounds of T-38s grounded, inadequate spares, and of course the fact that it's a 60, 70-year-old airframe, the Navy wanting a similar program because the T-45 is, you know, maybe not as geriatric as the T-38, but not doing great either. So it becomes, you know, is there a supplemental buy? Do they succeed in ramping up the T-7? Is it out of the woods? I, I think that's a big consideration for the industrial base, too, given everything going on. Uh, another uh, an, another uh, uh, trade show uh, that we could devote uh, an entire hour to. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all uh, have a, a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks so very much. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Vago. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Tune in tomorrow for our Look Ahead program uh, with Sam Bandet of the Center for Naval Analyses, giving us an update on uh, on the Ukraine war and Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead. Have a great day and look forward to seeing you tomorrow.